Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, good afternoon, or good whatever time it is that you're listening to this program. I am delighted that you have uh, chosen to spend some time with me and our educators panel today. Um, Not everybody listens to this program live. In fact, lots of people listen to it not live, and it's recorded or archived or iPodded version. But however you're listening to the program, I am delighted that you're uh, joining in today. Um, Today is, of course, the first Monday of the month, and if it's the first Monday of the month, well, that means it's time for the educators panel. So we're going to be taking a break today from any town high school Boy, have people been loving Anytown High School. Um, I I love it almost as much as the uh, educators panel, which I also like. This show is so much fun for me to do, and I feel like we are helping so many people in schools um, learn about collaborative problem solving, learn about what it sounds like, um, learn how to do it. And um, the Anytown High School seems to have been a very nice addition to the collaborative problem solving at school repertoire. So I hope that um, people out there are uh, getting as much out of it as the people who are telling me in person uh, that they're getting out of it. Um, We do have two of our educators with us so far. I know that Basel is not going to be joining us today, but we have Kate and Alicia on the line with us. I'm going to bring them on in just a second, but let me just do the, um, you know, the intro thing that I do. Um, First, let me give you the phone number to call in. We we, you can call in on the educators panel day. You can't call in on the um, any town high school days, but today is an educators panel day, and feel free to call in. That number is six four six seven two seven two six nine one. As always, if you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. Um, you're not the calling in type. Okay, don't call in, but send me an email if you have a question or a comment. You can do that electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website, and that's www.livesinthebalance.org. And, of course, that is the entity that sponsors this program. So while we're waiting for Tom to join in from um, his school in Maine, we have our two panel members from New York on the phone with us, Kate and Alicia. Welcome to the program. Hello. That was Alicia. That's Alicia. Hello. Hi, Kate. How are you? Hi. I'm good, thank you. You know, it's kind of nice to uh, talk to you guys every month. We don't really talk to each other any time besides on this program, but um, how are you both? 
I'm very well. How are you? I, I'm exhausted, but <laughs> welcome to my usual state of being. You guys must be exhausted, too. You work in a school, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you have, children of their, you have children of your own, so that's sort of the definition of exhausted. You work with kids and you have kids. That pretty much tells the tale, eh? That's right. Yeah. And we have and we have husbands. Oh. So there you I go. I don't have one of those, but I'm you know, I'm I, I feel terrible for you. <laughs> you poor thing. <laughs> Thank you. We now have Tom Tom joining the program. Tom, you're joining a little late. We are discussing how exhausting husbands are. I'm sure you'd like to weigh in on that topic, yes? <laughs> I, I'm not sure I don't have a frame of reference for that. <laughs> Just ask your wife, Tom. She'll give you all the frame of reference you need on yes. how exhausting husbands are. Um, nice to have you all on today. A- anybody got anything on their mind to start the program with? I have a few emails that I thought we would cover today, but not yet. Um, any any of you uh, been... Uh, fishing in the collaborative problem-solving waters and have something you want us to uh, take a look at? Actually, I, I Oh, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, boy. Go I, ahead, just wanted to, I just wanted to share that um, last month I was part of a professional development college course where we were looking at RTI groups. Um, response to intervention. It seems to be another buzzword in education. Indeed. And a lot, of, a lot of educators and parents and um, feel that it has to do with academics, but um, I was happy to say that we made it part, my group and I, about behavior and emotional concerns for children as well, and that we should be providing children with those sorts of interventions for any kind of behavior or emotional concerns that they have, and we talked a lot about the collaborative problem solving. It was very interesting, and we talked about how um, there's three different levels to RTI, level one being what happens in the classroom and how collaborative problem solving can be done right within the classroom throughout the day. We were able to explore some of that and talk about it as a frame of reference for, yes, not only is academics needing to be addressed, but so are behavioral and emotional concerns with children. So, Tom, I know that RTI is um, a hot item in Maine these days. I, Alicia and Kate, I take it that it is sweeping its way through New York as well? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Got it. Uh, my sense is that it's sweeping its way through virtually every American school system. Um, yes, uh, RTI does have those three tiers. Tom, you want to weigh in on where how, how you feel our, uh, collaborative problem solving and RTI overlap with each other? Sure. I, it kind of... Uh the answer is congruent with my question, too, so I'm going to pose that in part of my answer, Ross. Um, we're kind of looking at Tier 1 of RTI being uh, processes that are for the whole school. And so a lot of schools for the behavior part of RTI are looking at what's called positive behavioral interventions and supports. Mm-hmm. And um, another RTI kind of Tier 1 system would be using a rubric like Stan Davis's uh, uh, you know, schools where everyone belongs, uh, approach to student behavior and discipline. And, and I think that that uh, that's part of my question is, is kind of how those approaches which are considered to be pretty standard, so to speak, for Tier 1. Um, collaborative problem solving to me is, is, an, is, is interesting because it it's not, it's dynamic in nature, and so it does work at a Tier 1 level. It's for all kids. It works for anyone who has a problem that, that, that needs to be solved. 
but I think that collaborative problem solving most often ends up being used when a student has risen to what I would consider to be tier two. So in other words, tier one is that we set the expectations in the school community of what our, the behavior is in, in the different environments in the building, and generally everyone can do it. And then when a student can't meet those expectations, we choose plan A, B, or C, you know? And, and, and so I would look at plan B as being a tier two intervention. I guess it could become tier three if it became, it is very individualized, and usually tier two is generally considered to be a small group intervention. Uh, so the long and short of this is, it's, it, it, I've been working really hard on it, and it's something that, that I want to continue to explore because the, the collaborative problem solving requires that the student work individually with an adult, but a lot of times the solutions are part of the bigger group structure. Well, and I think that um, that's all correct. I think that each of the programs you named, you know, there's two different passes that I take at a, at a program. The first is, who does it affect? Is it whole school, um, kids who need our help, kids who haven't benefited from our help? Those are the usual three tiers of both RTI and PBIS. So that's the first pass I take at it is who are we applying it? Who are we applying whatever it is that we're doing to? That's that's sort of pass number one. Pass number two is what is the emphasis of the program? What ingredients are being applied uh, to help whoever we're trying to help? And um, some of the programs uh, that you named – tend to be rather adult-imposed, consequence-oriented. Mm -hmm. now, now, here's the cool part. Collaborative problem-solving can be applied across all three tiers, whole school, kids who are struggling, kids who still are struggling after we've tried to help them with the fact that they're struggling. Collaborative problem-solving cuts across all three. Um, and, you know, it depends on the school as it relates to which particular tier they are applying collaborative problem solving too. Some are some are all three. Many are that that tier of the kids who haven't benefited, who are having trouble, haven't benefited from what we've tried so far. So why not try collaborative problem solving? Um, I personally think that you you want to be doing collaborative problem solving across the board. But of course, I'm biased. Um, I would definitely agree with that as being the classroom teacher. That yeah. was one of the discussions that we had how, yes, this does apply at all three levels, but how it really could be started as a tier one intervention that everybody is doing. And that's, and, I think, how you, go ahead, sorry. Well, that's, what, I mean, and then if, the, you know, depending on the severity of the case or, or how much um, support the teacher needs, then it can become to that two, level two or tier three intervention support. But I, I just firmly believe that it's something that all teachers should be doing and offering for all students, not just our kids who have problems with teaching our other students, how do you solve problems, because we all have them, and I don't feel as though we do enough teaching of problem solving between children. And I guess my motto is, the more collaborative problem solving you do with everybody, 
the less collaborative problem solving you have to do later with the kids who didn't get collaborative problem solving in the first place because they got collaborative problem solving in the first place. Absolutely. Um, but then comes the second pass at this, and that is what are the ingredients of the intervention that is being applied, and to what degree are those ingredients consistent with collaborative problem solving? Now, collaborative problem solving isn't allergic to adult-imposed consequences. It just doesn't see the point. Adult-imposed consequences don't make a lot of sense to me, especially once we understand why challenging kids are challenging and when challenging kids are challenging. Once we understand that this is lagging skills, demands for those skills, and unsolved problems, suddenly adult-imposed consequences don't make so much sense anymore. And so that tends to be an interesting way in which some of the other programs that you named, Tom, and collaborative problem solving may not be especially congruent with each other. Um, if adults are imposing consequences, I want to know a lot more about what they're imposing consequences for. And what I always find, I don't mean sometimes, always, is that the adult-imposed consequences are being applied um, when we haven't taken a very close look at the specific conditions, with, and collaborative problem-solving calls those unsolved problems, in which a kid is being challenging, and what lagging skills and demands for those skills are underlying that unsolved problem. And I find that once we take it to that level of analysis, adult-imposing consequences doesn't make a great deal of sense anymore. But... Um, maybe, well, there are those who disagree with that assessment. Tom, you, you could be one of them. What, what do you think? Well, I think that it's it's interesting because I, I having been to Stan Davis's training my, personally, he's from Maine, and so I have actually attended the workshops prior to having met you. So to, I want to give my comments some context uh, because it. it Initially, it made a lot of sense to me, um, you know, the rubric-based system uh, and the Oveus studies that go with that, that kind of thought process. But I, I, I think that what was the pivotal point for me was this idea that kids do well if they can. And, and the idea that, like you said, if, if you have a lagging skill and then the demands for those skills are, are, are if you're being asked to do what you cannot do, then you're going to have unsolved problems. I mean, that as a counselor, but taking off my administrative hat, my guidance background, that just made a lot of sense to me. Um, and I and I guess I haven't, uh, Ross. Honestly, when I get the answer to this question, I'll probably write my own book. I don't know. I mean, it's you not that black. Not. It's not simple. Does that make sense? No, it's not simple. Um, the tricky part is. Mm, even more than lagging skills and unsolved problems, collaborative problem solving has an underlying philosophy. Kids do well if they can. Kids do well if they can says if a kid could do well, he would do well, which means if he's not doing well, something must be getting in his way. Another major hallmark of the approach is that it's highly individualized. And while rubric systems can be individualized, mostly they aren't. They are a list of the things that a kid can't do in the building and a list of what's going to happen to him if he does do those things. 
um, not individualized. Um, another key theme of collaborative problem solving is that the definition of good treatment is being responsive to the hand you've been dealt. If you're going to be responsive to the hand you've been dealt, you've got to know what's in your hand, lagging skills, demands for those skills. Um, and therefore, intervention needs to be so individualized, words can't say. While rubric systems can be individualized, mostly they aren't. They are algorithmic. And that's on all those counts where I start to question rubric systems and their usefulness um, with challenging kids. But maybe uh, Kate and Alicia want to pitch in here. I don't know to what degree rubric systems are familiar to you all, to you all in terms of ter school discipline. Um, I, we don't have a rubric. I mean, we don't use a rubric system as far as behavior goes. Obviously, we do in the academic sense and what's suspected. I can see how the crossover might be, but I'd have to agree about it's not really going. It's still not going to help those kids who have those challenging problems because unless it's individualized enough for them and what their needs are, I don't really see the effectiveness in that. Kate, any thoughts? Um, I would say at the building I'm at now, um, I, I'm actually proud to say that the, our administrators. Although we obviously have standards in every classroom, we really are very individualized in how we deal with each child's behavior. Um, in our district right now, the behavior component of RTI is not mandated, so that's just something that we're starting to look into, um, kind of at the brainstorming stages. And I'm excited to hear um, Alicia say that you know that it's that it's even being brought up as a possibility or one of the strategies we can use. Um, but no, we're not, to be honest, I'm kind of quiet now because we're not really even at that stage yet here at my school. Well, yet, yet in first, um, that you will be someday, and the truth is Absolutely. you will not By be someday. Year. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kate, anything that you wanted to, um, we've heard from Alicia and Tom before we turn to a few emails that I think are, interesting for us to cover. Any uh, hot topics for you today? No, no new hot topics for me. Um, actually, I've just really been thinking a lot about our last talk and the um, and have been listening for the how many times I hear a child knows better. And uh. <laughs> just because we've talk, we talked about it so much, that's really been um, on my mind for the last month. But um, no, no, no new topics. Ross, could I well, could I chime in a little just one more time about the, course, the rubric yeah, yeah. piece? Yeah, yeah I, I I just sitting here thinking about it for a minute. I you know I had an incident today where I had to deal with some pretty serious discipline, and I, I walked into the situation and I, I I actually told the teacher before we had the conversation. I said, you know what? I almost always go straight to Plan B, but I'm struggling right now because I'm really concerned about this, and so I want you to know that if I don't go that way, I'm choosing A consciously which is different than where I would have been two years ago. I have more in my repertoire than I used to. But i got to tell you, at the last second, I, I just I ditched it and went for B, and I, <laughs> it went way, way better. Well, do and, you, are you able to um, – I know that sometimes talking about specifics is not necessarily great, but 
can you give us what made it, if you can, yeah. what made it big, the severity of the behavior, um, yeah, the the, 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 the the potential, there were potential, um, um, yeah, it, it could have gotten, it could have been, the situation could have blown up, which would have been bad for the kid. And so, but what happened was that the student has difficulty with telling the truth. And I think a lot of people would say, well, he knows better. He should just tell the truth. But I used my skills. And I have to say, Ross, that I did not have these skills prior to two years ago the way I do now. And, and I really can feel it when, I'm, when I'm, I'm finally at the point where it's becoming more intuitive. And that's been a real breakthrough point for me with just being able to do, have, have effective, successful Plan B conversations. But basically, because I went about it, I, cho- I, I, I ditched it and went with B at the last minute, which I felt great about after. And, 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 and the, the best part about it was that, that the kid told the truth because I was open to hearing him. And I could feel it in the air. And there was a moment where there was a very long silence. And I thought, you know what? He's going to say, I don't know. Or he's going to shrug. And just 20 seconds later, he shrugged. But I was ready for it. And I knew what to do. And I'm just validating that, that, that there is skill to plan B. But it's skill that's earned. It's earned. And it's worth it. And it's just, I'm just encouraging folks who are listening, stick with it. Stick with having plan B conversations you just get better at it over time, and and it, and it makes you way more effective in dealing with people in general, not just kids. I, have, I love that quote. Oh, I loved your quote. I love that. I think that's a great thing. I, I'm thinking as a parent, even. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I'm when my kid quote knows better and they're doing something, and there's that little parenting plan A that comes out. I just love that quote. I ditched it and went with plan B. <laughs> like, what a great, that's a great thing. Fight, That'd be know, a good t-shirt, fight. right, or a bumper sticker it really or something. Is. I, and, it, and it came out better, and it went better. I mean, it, yeah. that's that's such a great thing to say to somebody who is just learning and is stuck in that habit of plan A. You know what? Here's your moment. Try this other way and watch how much further you can get. That was a great well, thank quote. you for that. And I do, I do just want to, the, the best part was that the kid... I saw the kid learn how to communicate better, and I felt the trust deepening. Yeah. And that is hard to do. It's, there's no way around it. It's not easy. But it's worth it. But I think it. the great thing is, too, in that moment when you said, like, you were at the moment where the kid could have lost it, how bad that moment would have been for that kid in front of everybody else. So he had to feel completely understood and validated that you didn't go that way, you know, that you I you did. actually gave him an out and understood him, and that's mm-hmm. what I love about it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Alicia, what were you going to say? I was going to say that's another really great reason why it, it, sh- it can be that tier one, like across the board, because the more you do it, the better you get at it. And if you're not only trying it with challenging kids, it gives you more time to practice gives you more time to try different things and to start to feel more comfortable with that. So when you get those more harder, challenging cases where this might be turning into something physical or explosive, you yourself feel a little bit more prepared because it's something that you're, it's becoming part of what you do. You know, I'm always, pond- I, find, I, I put lying, which is, of course, synonymous with difficulty telling the truth. Lying, I put on the spectrum of looking bad. It's just something... You know, it's right in there with hitting and spitting and throwing and running and lying. 
So it's something kids do that um, we wish they wouldn't do. And then my question is, so which plan, A or B, is likely to facilitate truth-telling? And, you know, I I think that one's an easy one. Um, I can't think of anything about plan A. Well, some people's mentality on plan A is that um, we're going to make your life so miserable that we are going to squeeze the truth out of you. Which, you know, that's but I shouldn't um, laugh because it's true. It is. We're gonna. I, I, it's we're gonna just the way you put it that made me you laugh. Talk. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, it's sort of a. I, I like to think of that as sort of a police mentality. Um, we're gonna put the squeeze on you, and then you're gonna, you know, you're gonna sing. Um, but that's sort of the plan A approach to truth telling. The, the plan B approach to truth telling is um, if we set the stage for it. And if we create an environment uh, in which a kid knows, and I don't know if you would have been able to say this, Tom, because maybe you were, uh, but if a kid knows that you're not mad and that you're not about to lower the boom and that he's not in trouble and that you're really just trying to understand, um, boy, how does that not facilitate truth-telling? But, um, Tom, you know better what the situation was and why it um, could con- potentially have led you until you took a last-minute swerve. Um, what was it about this situation? And maybe you can't tell us more about it, but I'm just curious about, because you have pretty strong Plan B instincts at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, what, were there certain characteristics of the situation that made you say this? This time, this is plan A. Well, I think that part of it is that there is a little bit – I'm struggling a little bit with young, young kids. First grade, kindergarten. Sometimes I've noticed that if we just set the expectation, they can do it, and they do it. But if we don't set it, they don't do it. And I think that what I've learned this week and what I've been working on is that a really great classroom management system sets a lot of expectations. And a lot of the kids do pretty well with that. It's the kids who consistently can't that we need to go to plan B. So I was just kind of thinking about the kid in the situation, and I was wondering if setting a clear expectation might help the kid to understand that what they'd done was really not okay. But then I took into account that kids do well if they can, and I thought about all the different, I mean, this is all happening very fast, as you know, Ross. I mean, I'm in a, yeah, of course. you know, you got to get out and just deal with it. But, yeah. and there's, you know, literally an IEP going on that I'm supposed to be at, and I'm dealing, I mean, it's it's tricky. That's but, life in the real world of a school building. Exactly. And and I think that the key to that is, is A, you have to be an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> and, which, and which, B, uh, knowing you personally, I know that you are. <laughs> yes, I would agree. And and then B, you have to you have to have the skills to do it in the moment, which goes back to that learning curve. But the bottom line of it is that that I just decided that I always, when I drive to work every day, I ask myself, how would I want someone to treat my son? Mm, so if I'm nice trying to solve point. a complicated situation, I say to myself, if this was my little boy what would I want done for him, and that's what made me change my mind. That's a great reference point. But, you know, you mentioned that, uh, in your comments you said something very important. Uh, not not that the rest of it wasn't, but 
you know, life is hectic in a school. And um, there are spur-of-the-moment decisions. And I find that the more hectic things are and the more duress people are under and the more people feel time pressure, the more pressure there is to be decisively plan A. Yep. Plan A feels decisive when we're under duress. And yet, as you were also saying, well, let me ask you, without going into detail about what the kid did, do you have questions about whether he knew whether what he did was inappropriate? Oh, he knew it was wrong. Got it. So I seldom find, this this is a fascinating thing, I seldom find that the challenging kids who are having difficulty meeting our expectations don't know what our expectations are. They are as clued into our expectations as they can possibly be. And in fact, as I've been saying these days, uh, not only do challenging kids know what our expectations are, regular old kids do too. So this is not a matter of not knowing the expectations. It's a matter of not having the skills to perform what we know. And so I'm glad you swerved at the last minute. Thanks, Ross. Me too. But don't you agree that under I prefer saying I ditched it, though. It's more fun. Oh, that's going. That's what's going on the T-shirt. No, that's much better than swerving. <laughs> so look, I'll just use your phraseology. Aren't you glad you ditched Plan A at the at the last second? Yeah. You, you brought yourself to the edge, and then looked Plan A right in the eye and said, "No thanks." But don't you find that when people in schools and other places are under duress, they feel tremendous need to be decisive? And what feels most decisive at that moment is plan A. Well, it's more efficient. You can just say, yeah, we're not going to do that. Or, or, or plan A in some ways is, it's like, uh, I, you ever watch Star Wars, you know, where Yoda's like, uh, you know, the dark side is, is easier, more seductive or whatever. You know, plan A is just downright easier. It takes less time. You just, no, you're not going to do that. Or yes, you are. And it's like, you know, you turn into like a miniature Donald Trump or something. And I, I don't like that. I want I want real collaboration. It takes time, energy, and and it, it, you have to be willing to stand in a storm for a little while if you're going to do real collaboration. You know. Yes, and it's only one part of that that I think um, is interesting. Plan A feels like it's efficient at the moment. Exactly. It's actually extraordinarily inefficient exactly. because if Plan A in the moment doesn't Um, help us solve this problem that is causing the student to engage in the behavior that we don't like, and we just keep doing plan A, that to me is the picture of inefficiency. Thank you for clarifying that. I would agree with that 100%. Shall we turn our attention, if if Kate and Alicia, anything to pitch in there before I turn to one of our emails that we've received? No. Here we go. No, Go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I said, no, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, I'm actually going to pick the other one. Hang on one sec. Uh, We in our junior high school are struggling with a sixth-grade male who leaves the self-contained classroom setting without permission on a regular basis. We have instituted a pass system, a return-in-five-minutes pass, 
and notified all staff of the plan. Now, I hope I hope we're all listening closely to this. We also use a point system with daily social and tangible rewards. As we have a no-restraint policy, well, good for you on that point, to our emailer, we cannot simply stop his egress, nor do we have the staff to shadow his roaming. We welcome any suggestions. Um, anybody want to... As I'm re- as I always read these, and I, I get more of these for the parent program than for the educator program, although the educators are starting to make a comeback. Um, I'm always listening for what's missing. I mean, the it's certainly a serious situation. Let there be no doubt. Um, uh, the kid leaves a classroom setting without permission. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Does it on a regular basis? A problem. We have instituted a pass system, a return in five minutes pass, and notified all staff of the plan. Now I'm starting to get interested. And we also use a a point system with daily social and tangible rewards. Okay, so good that they don't restrain the kid. What's missing from this picture? This is not a quiz. I'm just posing the question. Well, not knowing much about, I mean, anything more, I'm curious where the kid is going? Is he just wandering? Is that what it said? He's, they find him uh, wandering, or he's leaving the the self-contained classroom setting without permission on a regular basis. Okay. And we don't have the staff to shadow his roaming, but that we don't really know where he's going. Okay. We know he's well, doing obvious- it often. Yeah. My first initial questions are, you know, is there a t- a certain time when he's leaving? Is there a pattern to? When he decides to leave the classroom, or is it just at random moments? Is he, you know, is there a certain time of the day or instruction that he's wanting out, or is there a place? Well, and here's, that he... here's the good news, of course. There are no random moments in collaborative problem solving. There are no random moments. Right, there that's are only... what I was <laughs> predictable. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, that's, that's can we cool figure part. out? Yeah. We don't have to worry about random moments. Uh, but But your use of the word when brings me to unsolved problems. Right. What unsolved problems are setting in motion him leaving? Yes? Right. And then there's another part missing. Um, I'm noticing the word we a lot. I have this terrible feeling that we does not include he. Him. Right. Yes. I'm wondering. Uh, go ahead. I'm just wondering if anyone has asked the child why he's leaving. If we've gotten to that, I mean, I, that sounds pretty simple, I guess. But I'm just wondering if, if what's what's the reason he's going. Sometimes and, and I like. Would, right. That, that would lead us straight to unsolved problems. Mm-hmm. And the only fine-tuning there, I would say, is I don't want to have those conversations when he's leaving. No. Right. I want to have those conversations before he's leaving. Right. One of the things I noticed, I was um, on an inpatient unit this morning working with some of the staff and was reminded, as I am on an almost daily basis, of what incredible solutions we adults are capable of coming up with mm-hmm. without, any, without, any, without any input from the kid whatsoever. 
and without really understanding what his concern or perspective is on an unsolved problem, we adults are just ingenious uh, in coming up with just incredible solutions that are, are informed only by our own ingenuity, but not by the empathy step of Plan B. Well, I kind of went there with this this kid. I'm I'm thinking the first thing I would want to do is to get more information, which you you alluded to by saying you know kind of when. But I but I also think that that um, uh, I'm wondering about. I have a hypothesis, you know, that there's something that's obviously stressing him out to the point where he feels like he needs to leave. But my hypothesis, I like like to kind of just check it at the door because it could be that. There's, I mean, it could be as simple as there's a girl that he wants to see down the hall. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know enough about him to, to go there. So I, I would just start with the empathy step, and it might be the kind of thing where, if they're fr- really, it sounds to me like the tone of the email is, we, 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 and we're kind of frustrated. What do we do? So the first thing I would say is to have very proactive Plan B time where you focus on the empathy step to the point where there's some str- trust established. If my hypothesis that it has been kind of eroded a little bit is true. Interesting. So the empathy step of Plan B would not only help us gather information, it would also help us establish trust with the student? Mm-hmm. What's well, really? That, I think that's the, the best part of collaborative problem solving is that there's an unintended outcome. Just by sitting and listening and being open, and open the relationship automatically will get better. Which is very interesting because I've, I've always referred to that as... Um, an indication that what we're doing already is what we're doing is already working. Many people have an interesting definition of working. Working means the behavior is gone, the problem is solved. Right. Uh, but there are many, as I've always said, there are many workings on the way to the holy grail of working. Yes, ultimately, we would like this problem to be solved, and we would like the behaviors that, that are byproducts of this unsolved problem to go away. But Improving communication is one form of working on the way to the Holy Grail. And improving your relationship with a student is a form of working on the way to the Holy Grail. And gathering information from a student so you really understand what's going on with him and what's been getting in his way on a particular unsolved problem is a form of working on the way to the Holy Grail of working. Um, Boy, there sure are a lot of workings on the way to having collaborative problem-solving ultimately work. Hmm. A lot of working on the way there. Let, should we take one more? We probably only have time for here. Are we ready? Sure. The subject line here says, students that will not engage in problem-solving. That's the subject line. Um, I am currently hosting a book study with Lost at School, and one of the participants is running into an issue as she attempts to use the CPS model. Her student is refusing to talk. He will not engage in the process. He is very angry. The assistant principal has a good relationship with him, too, and has read your book, but neither of them have been successful in helping find a way to problem solve. Thus, plan A is ruling right now. I would love any help or guidance you can give. I am excited about their willingness to try this approach at the middle school level. And I do not want them to um, abandon the process when things get tough. 
I, 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 weigh in? I definitely do, having Go been ahead. a middle school guidance counselor. This this is a, a classic case of, the, uh, I guess the best way to put it is there needs to be some very uh, immediate and conscious backpedaling with regard to this student because the student is in the red, so to speak, emotionally. He's, he's not going to respond to problem solving. Um, <clears throat> so the best thing that you could do is to figure out a, an activity or something that the student likes to do and then connect that activity to an adult who has skills and then, and then spend a lot of time building a relationship. And then when the student's ready, the doors will start to open. But I think that um, with this kid, it sounds to me like pushing hard or, or pushing to, to do that work that you were talking about in your last comment, which was caused me to have a lot of other thoughts about this whole thing, but, but I just, I, I guess what I'm saying is that there is a lot of work on the way to getting to a solution, but for this one, it sounds like the first step is to work on, on safety and trust, because uh, even if he has a good relationship with the assistant principal, if plan A has been used over and over again, there's, there's a, a psychological habit that's associated with walking into that person's office or to talking with that per person, regardless of whether or not uh, uh, you, you like them. And so I think that what needs to happen is a, a new relationship or a relationship with someone in a new, a new environment would probably be the first step toward um, um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, bre breaking it open, I guess, so, so to speak, doing that gently. Kate or Alicia, any thoughts? I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think um I think you have to I, I think you have to embrace the silence sometimes and just work on getting to know the kid. Because you know, sometimes people think when kids say, I don't know, that they really they really know but they just don't want to tell. But I think it's true for adults too, sometimes you really you really just don't know yet why you're doing what you're doing or why you're feeling what you're feeling, and that may come in time, um, you know, but I 100% agree. You, it takes time to get to get trust. Not everybody's going to walk in and just sit down and, you know, lay it all out there. You know, it's work. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's obviously well worth the time. It's win-win. Alicia, go ahead. I agree. When we're talking about a middle school child, so this, I'm guessing, is a child who's done plan days since maybe kindergarten. So, like the others were saying, they have this psychological response that's happened. Why should I trust you? How is this going to be different? And it's going to take more than just one or two times of trying to convince um the child that this is something that, you know, we're going to work on with them, they need to, to see how it's going to be different and to really see that when it gets hard, you're still going to be there for them. And I like to, I agree with take them out and look for someone who has different kinds of skills. I think it's a, it's a, a, a better way to collaborate and see what other people who may not um, be involved with the child can, can bring to the table or at least get the child to start talking about something, even if it's something just on a topic that they like or they're feeling comfortable, a place where they can go and 
when they're in need for something. You know, it's interesting because I used to teach 50 kids a week guitar lessons when I was in my early 20s. So I used to teach them half-hour or hour lessons. If you think about that, I sat with 50 students for about 35 hours a week for uh, five or six years. That was some of the best training for dealing with at-risk students I will ever get because what kid goes to the music store and wants to learn how to play rock guitar? Right? And so I found out that those kids came to the door for the lesson, but they also came to the door because I got their perspective. And man, this this whole CPS thing has really shed light on... I've said it before to other folks, and I've never said it on the show, but the part that works for me about CPS is that it made explicit what I was doing naturally when I was, quote, on or having a good day working with people. Tom, on that note, we're going to call it a day for Collaborative Public Public School. Thanks to our educators panel for another great program. Thanks to the rest of you for listening. Take care.